What is up, ladies and gentlemen? It is your favourite absent producer, Liam Helfson here, today hosting the newly minted Sideshow Plebs podcast. So look, this is a spin-off podcast. We'll keep away from the Plebs on Footy podcast terrain and we'll look at some other stuff that might be interesting, some sports and media, whatever's catching our eye really at the moment. Think of it as the sweet and sour sauce to the chicken nuggets that are the main Plebs on Footy podcast experiences. Just that little bit of extra goodness that'll give you that little bit of pep in your step. So we're going to have a variety of guests on different weeks of this show, including your favourite Plebs on Footy podcast hosts and some fans from the wider Plebs community. It's also some weeks it'll just be me. We can just have a nice quick chat, just just talk about some interesting things that are going on in the world at the moment. So you're stuck with me for now, but we're just going to see how this goes and see where it will take us. So... The topic I really want to talk about today, the topic that I think every Australian and Englishman will have been talking about for the last week, is that third Ashes test that's starting tonight. Tonight. We are recording on the 22nd of August, so it's starting tonight. Um, And really, you can't talk about that test without first of all asking, what the hell was that second test? Oh my gosh. The Australians go to the fortress that is Edgebaston. The English think that they can't lose there, possibly at all ever. Smith goes and makes a truckload of runs, and it was surprising. There was lucky that there was rain in that second test, really. Otherwise, can you really see the English winning that? I don't know. Um, but really, the important story coming out of that second test, the one that we have to talk about first, obviously, is uh, Smith. What happened to Smith? So, for those who didn't watch, you must have heard in some capacity, Smith got struck by Jofra Archer in the second innings of that test. He went down, um, he was pulled out for concussion, he tried to come back and bat later that innings, but he was out for concussion and was no good. Um, And the first thought, obviously, is just how scary that stuff is. Uh, We've seen people get hit before, uh, with what happened with Phil Hughes a few years ago, you're just terrified that something really bad could happen. We're obviously glad he's okay, and it really is a relief that nothing worse happened. But the question that really stems from that strike is, will this affect his confidence at all? Uh, I say no. I think Steve Smith has shown his ability to adapt to problems in the past. Um, I'm thinking of India in 2017, the tour over there. He's always had problems with spin, but he really showed a determination to work through those problems, and he scored 200s, arguably his best 100s in that series, even thinking back to the Ashes series in 2015. um, The Aussies got rumbled in Trent Bridge, and Smith came back and made a whole lot of runs, including some hundreds later in that series. So he's shown the ability to adapt, but I guess that's never been made in the context of short-pitch bowling, and in particular him getting hit and hurt. So we're going to have to see how he adjusts to that. I'm not sure what he's going to do. Um, he can't premeditate, probably, stepping across so early. Because at the moment, during this series, he's just camped that back foot right across from leg stump to off stump. And he's just had a field day, really. Um, Joffre Archer is the first bowler I've seen in a while that's made him think about it. That's made him look like he doesn't have so much time to play the ball anywhere he wants to play it. Um, so his adjustments are going to be very, very interesting. Obviously, he's not playing in the third test, which is the next big story, because the Australians will have to manage without him. He's been the guy keeping them afloat for the last five years. They've had subpar batting, really, since the last great batsman retired in Ponting and Clark and Hussey. Uh, And Smith's been the only one really holding it down. 
Um, Warner has at times too, obviously, but he looks horribly out of nick at the moment. So the question is, will Warner pick up his form and show a bit more at Headingley? And will people like Travis Head, Labashane, really get stuck in and show a bit of fight? Um, Trav Head could make some runs, I think, more so than the other batsmen. I think he's more likely. Uh, And the reason why is because he's shown really good tempered aggression. I think particularly in that first test, Australia were deep in trouble, two for not many. Him and Smith were in and looking a little... Three for not many, sorry. And Smith and him were looking a little edgy early, but Head came out and played positively. Put the English on the back foot, and really that's set up his innings. He only scored about 30 or so, but he scored them quickly, and then Smith really felt the pressure come off him, and he was able to play his normal way. So I think Travis Head is really the one that'll be a key linchpin in this third test if the Aussies are going to have any chance of winning it. Um, the English were obviously buoyant. The English think that they're a really good chance to win this third test. And the main reason for that will be the man himself, the terroriser, Jofra Archer. Um, we've got to talk about his debut in that second test, really. Uh, he had a really, really good first outing in whites. Um, good results. You know, he took three for in both innings, including his three for in that second innings. He was He had the Aussies on the run. Um, and that's something which is scary for the Aussies going into the rest of this series because that kind of penetration in the bowling is scary and is something that will get them really worried about having that combo with Broad. Uh, but the thing we have to talk about most obviously with Jofra Archer, uh, more than his good results, more than anything else, is just the fact that the dude bowls seriously quick. Um, and it's that real obvious speed that when you're watching, you can see how uncomfortable the batsmen are facing it. And what I mean by that is there's something different about pace bowlers like Archer to other bowlers that might reach the same speed on the speed gun, but they don't cause nearly as much trouble for the batsman when bowling short or when bowling those really tough spells. Some examples I can think of is when you look at someone like Mark Wood or Mitchell Stark, bowl short, bowl their fast short spells, they might hit 150 k's an hour or close to it. But it doesn't look quite as uncomfortable as the people who bowl short and it looks dangerous. I'm thinking Mitchell Johnson when he was flying or even Neil Wagner for New Zealand at the moment, a personal favourite of mine being a Kiwi. When they bowl bounces, they might not bowl the actual speed as quickly, but for whatever reason, batsmen really struggle to pick up the line, the length and play the ball properly. And Joffre Archer has that quality. He has that ability on top of the fact that he can also pitch the ball up and swing it. I know it is a red Dukes ball, so it moves more than something like a kookaburra would in Australia, but he gets some serious movement, and it's the kind of thing where you can't just expect him to only bowl short and then wait for the full toss or the half volley that isn't moving. He's going to challenge your outside edge, and he's going to make you think about playing those you know, glorious cover drives when he finally pitches the ball up. He's got that real combo that's going to make you pretty scared about playing him in any conditions, but especially in the English conditions where it's going to move a bit. But the question with Jofra, and the question that I think the English should be more worried about than they are, they're not really talking about it at the moment, is Jofra's durability. Uh, He hasn't played much long-form cricket. He's played some county stuff. Obviously, this is his first test, but he's mostly been a short-form player, thinking about the fact that he's a one-day player for England. He played a lot of T20 stuff, not for England, but going around the world, you know, for like the Hobart Hurricanes, also played in England, various places he's been really the gun for hire. But that stuff doesn't build durability for tests. 
And history has shown when you push guys like Joffre, young guys who bowl heat, to bowl a lot of test overs, it's a challenge. And it's something that will really push him and his body. Will he hold up to it? I don't think the English have really considered that as much as they should have. Root bowled him a lot in the last test. It seemed like whenever they needed wickets, he would put Joffre on for a 6-8 to eight over spell, bowling 150 k's an hour short, digging it in, using his back repeatedly. And he might break down if they keep pushing him like that. As I've said, we've seen this before. You've just got to look at Pat Cummins, at Jimmy Patterson, really at all the guys who bowl heat in Australian uniforms that started when they were young. They've all had serious health issues because they got pushed to bowl too much too early. I guess, though, the distinguishing factor, the thing which could be quite different, is the fact that Archer really does seem to be efficient in the way he goes about bowling. And what I mean by that is not only that he seems to have a pretty good technique when he gets to the crease and bowls through the crease, he's pretty upright, he doesn't really do anything obviously bad that I can see from a technical standpoint, but it's even the fact that his run-up is short. Like, the guy doesn't expend much energy running in. When you look at it on TV, it looks almost half the length of all the other pace bowlers who play, and he's bowling faster than most of them, but it's off seeming like four paces the guy starts his run and he's already at the crease and he bowls and it comes out and that's 150 k's an hour uh, which is mighty impressive and i guess the question is whether that might take some load off and make it a bit easier for him to last in test cricket regardless of whether that helps i think root needs to really ease off a little bit and just make sure you're not pushing him too much because the english showed in the first test that without anderson um, they need more penetration in their bowling. They're really, at the moment, it looks pretty toothless with just Broad being the main strike bowler. So, Root needs to make sure that Joffre Archer stays fit and stays ready to go for the rest of this series. The other issue that really faces England is keeping their batting on track. I mean, you look at the way they've batted so far this series. It's been very, very shaky. Um, Root has scored no runs at all. You've got Burns, who scored a few, Stokes scored a nice 100, and Bairstow scored a 50. But in two tests, the top orders and middle orders' returns have been very, very lean. So England is still going to be very, very concerned about the way their batting can perform, particularly if the difficult conditions at Headingley are going to be as bad as they think. Um, We're recording this late at night on the 22nd of August. They've played two overs of cricket, four overs of cricket or whatever it is, Australia are one down already. Looks green, looks overcast, looks difficult. Very, very difficult to bat. And though Australia might struggle in these conditions, they probably will. They'll be confident that their pace bowlers can make England's batting struggle equally as much, even not more. So England has to be very, very worried about what their batting can do in this situation. Looking specifically at... Joe Root and his woeful form this series, but even going before this series as well. If you look back, his average has been steadily declining since 2017. It was in the low 50s, 53, 52-ish for a while up until 2017, but it's been steadily dropping since then. Uh, And a number of reasons, I think, can be put towards why this would happen. But the thing I don't like at the moment that I think really isn't helping Root, in this series in particular, is batting him at three. Root isn't a number three batsman. 
I'm going to put that forward right now. I don't think he should be a number three batsman. I don't think he has the required skills to be a particularly proficient number three batsman in test cricket. The reason why that is, is because looking at Joe Root and the way he plays the ball, the way he's played the ball throughout his whole career, he's always been a back foot oriented player. If you give him a length ball, he plays it from the back foot. If he's got any doubt as to the length, he plays it from the back foot. He's a guy who likes to camp back at his crease and only gets forward when absolutely necessary. And the reason why this doesn't help him as a number three is because the ball moves more when you're at number three. Because you're in earlier, the ball is newer. The ball is going to swing more. The ball is going to nip more. It's going to be generally more difficult because of movement for a batsman at number three. Whereas when when he's coming in at number five instead of Stokes or someone, it's much easier because the ball's not going to nip as much. He can play the ball off the back foot. The ball's much truer on its line and length. And he's got more confidence in doing that, knowing the situation of the game as well. He does look more comfortable down the order. On top of that, he looks like he knows what he's doing as a number five batsman. There is a reason why he averages by far the most at the number five position, and then more at the number four position than the number three position, is because the later he comes in, the better he looks. Number three isn't the answer. I know there's the common conception, Ian Chappell loves to push this, that number three should be your best bat. And in a way, I get why he says that, but also it's incredibly outdated for modern cricket. There's lots of ways of making runs in modern cricket, ways that aren't technically orthodox or proficient. You've just got to look at Steve Smith to see that that's the case. So pushing that Root has to be number three just because he's the best batsman in that team really doesn't take into account the context of how Root has scored his runs and become the best batsman in that team. I think England would be better served moving him back to five and finding even just someone, anyone, to fill that number three position. Because the history in the last three to four years has shown that if you have anyone at number three, but have Root at five, Root will perform better. The people around Root will perform better. So that's your Bearstows, your Stokes, your Joss Butler. They bat better as well when Root is making runs. And England should be in a better position that way. Naturally, though, the counter to this and it can be a valid counter, is that England should get in trouble quicker, and they should be in more trouble by the time Root comes in. The example being, instead of coming in at 1 for 20, Root will be coming in at 3 for 40. Huge difference in how much trouble you're in at that point. But this series has kind of shown that if Root's not comfortable, it doesn't matter if it's a better position for him to be coming in. It doesn't matter if it's only 1 for 20. Because he's still just going to get out. He's still going to nick off. He's not comfortable there. You're better having everything having gone wrong before he gets in, but he can still get in and back comfortably than bringing him in earlier and just losing him for nothing. If he's your best batsman, you put him in a position to succeed. You don't put him in a position where he's uncomfortable and not going to succeed. Similar argument as to when Michael Clarke was making runs for Australia. He always batted at four. He was their best batsman. Didn't bat at three. He batted at four. You don't have to be Ricky Ponting. You don't have to be Kane Williamson. You can bat at different positions. And even Smith nowadays shows that 
Number four is perfect for him. Kawaja just bats, and he's a good batsman, but not as good as Smith. And then Smith is allowed to come in and play his natural game at his pace. And that is so much more beneficial for him than just forcing him to play at three, giving him more of a chance to get out early. So really, it's beneficial for Root, it's beneficial for his teammates, and it could be beneficial really, I think, for the whole English lineup if they just commit to this idea that Root isn't a number three and that you're going to play him as a number four, number five instead. Move someone up there. Move Joe Denley up there for all I care. Just figure something out so that Root can play back where he is comfortable playing. So I think that'll do for some cricket wrap-up for now. Let's move on to a very, very quick summary of the second Bledisloe game between the Wallabies and the All Blacks. As a New Zealand fan, it was a great relief for me to see the All Blacks come back and completely shellac that Wallaby side in that second test. But I'll be honest, um, early on, it did not look particularly good for the All Blacks. The All Blacks weren't that confident, at least initially, because the Wallabies had a lot of possession. And the Wallabies were getting through phase play. They were getting breaks, not clean line breaks, but they were getting good phase ball. They were making the gain line, and the New Zealand defence was scrambling for a lot of that first 20 minutes. Problem was, though, you can't leave six points out there in penalties against the All Blacks. You just can't. If you're going to beat the All Blacks, even an All Black team like the current one, which I believe isn't quite as good, you can't leave six points out there. Liliofano missing those two penalties really hurt. And then, of course, as tends to happen when you leave points out there, you've got the ball, you make a mistake, Wallabies fumble, (laughs) Moanga picks it up and bang. All of a sudden, you're 7-0 down. Then 10-0 down. Then all of a sudden, you're 17-0 down at half-time. And the game's basically over. And you could really see, particularly at a place like Eden Park, where New Zealand causes problems historically for Australia, that really that 20 minutes was the most crucial part of the game. The Australians needed to put points and point pressure, scoreboard pressure, on that inexperienced... Oh, actually, probably not inexperienced, but out-of-form all-black side. This all-black side, I think, is not particularly well... well in, They're not in good form at the moment, and they really need to sort out their lineup. So this was as good a chance as Australia's had for a few years now to try and take two games off the all-blacks. But they just couldn't execute. And at Eden Park, if you can't execute, you're never going to beat the All Blacks. It's just, they're too comfortable there. It's too hard a place to play as the away side. Um, For the All Blacks, the thing I'm really looking for is, I think we need more size in that back row. I love Sevilla and Kane, I do. They're both fantastic flankers. But I think we need a bit more size, particularly on the blind side. So playing Sevilla or Kane on the bench and having someone like a Shields in that flanker spot, that blindside spot, could be more beneficial, just as a bit more bully ball kind of thing. Sacrifice that little bit of mobility, but give that real strength and grit, particularly in ball carries and tackling. Uh, I was impressed with Richie's game, Richie Mawanga. Uh, He's just gained more confidence over the time. But approaching the World Cup, an issue I really see is I'm concerned about Bowden Barrett's 
consistency. He's obviously a wonderful player and he's continued to develop ever since he's first come into the team. But there's still just this element of flakiness about him that makes me uncomfortable. Historically, I've always liked those consistent New Zealand 10s. I mean, Dan Carter's the obvious one. But granted, he was always injured. Even though Aaron Cruden had this element of consistency that I don't think Bowden Barrett quite has, uh, it's really important in a World Cup year, in a World Cup coming up, the tournament needs consistent players. The pressure comes on and you can't just be cutting people up with line breaks for the whole tournament. It's not possible. Bowden Barrett needs to be on. He can't be missing easy kicks if he's kicking. Richie Moanga was taking the kicks, and that seemed to work really well. He didn't miss many. But if Bowden Barrett's taking kicks, he needs to be on. He needs to be making good decisions, and he needs to be not wasting any ball unnecessarily. I'm not saying that I don't think he can do that, because I do. He's done that before, and he can keep doing that. But doing it eight games in a row in a tournament like the World Cup... It could be a bit much for him. I could see us losing a quarterfinal or a semi-final or a final because of some bad Bowden Barrett decisions. And that's something that we'll just have to wear. He, I mean, he's too good to not play. But it's something to be worried about. The Australians, they're always a chance. Um, I learnt from a young age, you never count the Wallabies out in anything because the Wallabies always play above their level. It doesn't matter how bad they're meant to be. They always seem to really rise to occasions and rise to, rise to tough situations. They'll have bad games, but they can play some bloody good games too. So I'd be worried about the Wallabies. I certainly wouldn't bet on them. If I was a betting man, I wouldn't bet on them to win. But they've definitely got something there. And I think they're a bit underrated at the moment. Um, they're definitely trying to find some chemistry and they're finding some chemistry at the right time. You don't want to be firing now, as the All Blacks in previous tournaments have shown. You build into a World Cup. You find the best 30-man squad and you build the chemistry together and hit your straps in the quarters or semi-finals. I think the Springboks might have gone a bit early. They're starting to play some good rugby, but it could be a bit too early. And I think getting too confident too early is a, is a danger spot. Wallabies aren't in that situation. Um, I like that James O'Connor is back. Kirtley Beale's playing pretty well. I like Lily Afano. It's just a good side, really. It's a good, solid side. Karevi's really good. Um, their forward pack's pretty good, too. They've got a good chance. Uh, don't sleep on the Wallabies. That's for sure. But anyway, as far as the Rugby World Cup, that's obviously coming up. We'll be doing a lot more deep dives into these teams and into these squads in the future weeks just having a look at really where everyone is placed in this tournament this is an interesting tournament uh, the All Blacks aren't as strong as they have been historically they don't have the veterans there I think that they have in the last two tournaments to really make them the clear and by far favorites so it is a pretty open tournament and some teams that don't usually have a shot I think have a bit of a shot this year so we'll be taking a bigger look at that in the coming weeks and giving you guys a bit more of a introductory look into the Japanese World Cup. But that will about do it for the first ever Sideshow Plebs podcast. Thank you guys so much for listening. This has been your host, Liam Helverson. Thank you for joining us, and I look forward to joining you in the coming weeks to see exactly where this new podcast will go. Thank you, and have a good day.